Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to lecture 18 of the Fiat Standard Online course. Today's lecture is the final lecture of the course. It is the one that concludes the course and the book. And the chapter is really, I would say, the culmination of the question that was started in the Bitcoin Standard. And um, all of the Fiat Standard essentially circled around answering this question. And it's, of course, a very difficult question. It's not something that I can answer in any kind of definitive way because it is about the future and I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know what's going to happen into the future. But I've tried using um, the analytical tools of this book um, and 
by trying to understand how fiat works, how Bitcoin works, and um, how they interact with each other. I've tried to imagine certain ways in which the relationship between those two monetary systems can evolve over the coming years. And so this is what this chapter tries to do. It looks at the potential possibility that Bitcoin continues to exist. And it goes over some of the uh, reasons why Bitcoin might not exist and provides an economic rationale for why these might not kill Bitcoin. So I come up with the three generally, I would say, the three main class of threats that can happen to Bitcoin and try and provide an overarching kind of um, economic rationale for why these things might not succeed in killing Bitcoin and why Bitcoin might continue in spite of these three things. And so given that these three threats can be alleviated, what happens if Bitcoin continues to survive? What happens if Bitcoin continues to click along 10 blocks at a time, making a new block every 10 minutes? How does the world adjust? How does fiat money adjust? What happens to the institutions of fiat money that we have been discussing throughout this uh, book and course. So, um, to begin with, um, you know the, the the key idea here is again similar to the idea that I began the last lecture with, which is that the theoretical discussion of whether Bitcoin fits the definition of money or whether it um, is suitable for performing the role of money can only take us so far. What matters far more than these theoretical discussions is reality on the ground. Are people using Bitcoin as money or not? And as long as people continue to use Bitcoin as money, then uh, theoretical discussions need to be readjusted to reality. You know, your theories are what needs to adjust to reality. Reality doesn't need to conform to your theories. This is what knowledge, uh, this is how knowledge and science work in a normal world. In fiat world, of course, Fiat scientists think that this is something for them to decree. They decide what is science. They decide what is real. But um, I think Bitcoin is enforcing this kind of revolt against fiat. It's, it's imposing a new revolt, revolt against fiat where it just continues to operate regardless of theories. So considering that it continues to operate, what does that mean? Well, Bitcoin is the world's first digitally scarce asset and the first liquid asset with strict verifiable scarcity. That's what we have on our hands. It's the first thing that is truly scarce and digital. And the implication of that thing continuing to exist, I think, are substantive. So Bitcoin offers no yield and is therefore not held for its returns. You can't really compare it to a stock. It's not a commodity. It's, it's not a uh, security. It's not like a stock because it offers no yield. There's no return that comes to you from holding Bitcoin. It is instead held for its own value, like cash. You hold Bitcoin for its own value, like you hold physical cash or like you hold physical gold. It's not expected to yield things for you. It just sits there. Cash is held, from according to the Austrian economists, cash is held because of uncertainty. The reason we hold cash rather than just um, assets that yield returns is because the future is uncertain. In a world of no uncertainty, where all your future income and expenditures are perfectly predictable, there is no need to ever hold cash, as you can always place your money in capital markets to earn a return, which can be liquidated at the exact time you need to spend it. But in the real world, with uncertainty pervading life, people do need to hold cash balances to meet their uncertain future obligations. Investments in assets that offer yield always involves risks. So 
you're taking on a risk when you take on an investment. Holding cash is a way to not have risk. Cash should, should be the thing that offers you the least risk. And because it offers no risk, it offers you simply yield. And we discussed this in detail in chapters uh, 4, 5, and 6, I think, in this book. So cash offers you no yield, but it offers you the lowest risk. That's supposed to be the case. And equity, on the other hand, involves risk, but it uh, offers you a yield. It offers you a return because you're essentially giving up the security of cash and exchanging it for capital goods. And capital goods can yield a return. So the fiat century destroyed cash. And as a replacement, people hold a hodgepodge of different assets, including government bonds, physical gold, real estate, equity, and art. It used to be that cash was just something that was certain, but now it's very hard to have any certainty in your cash balances, and so you need to make do with a complex mix of different assets. You hold government bonds, which are the closest thing that we have to cash because supposedly they are the thing that has the least equity risk or the least default risk. Um, You hold physical gold, which is useful because it doesn't have any default risk, but it's not very useful because it's not easy to move it around and there are no gold banks. You hold real estate because it's relatively very difficult to make more of it. It has a relatively high stock-to-flow ratio. You hold equity because it earns a yield, but it does involve risk, so it's not ideal as cash. And people even hold art as a form of cash because it's uh, also got a high stock-to-flow ratio. You know, once an artist dies, he can't make more of his art pieces, and so these can appreciate. So as long as government cash continues to be horrible, which it is universally all over the world, then people will use these things as cash assets and as cash substitutes. Bitcoin is just a new asset that is added to this new long list. It is different from them in two main ways. It does not depend on legal political institutions to function, and its supply is strictly fixed. This is where it is different from all these other forms of cash. This is what makes Bitcoin unique. So if we look over the past few years, we see that Bitcoin's performance has been much better than all of these other cash substitutes in terms of just its appreciation in, in, against the US dollar. It is very volatile in the short term, but in the long term, it performs very well. If these trends continue, if the trend of Bitcoin continues to perform well, continues to hold, which you should expect it to because the supply is fixed and the marginal production is continuously declining, every four years it drops by half. If this trend continues, more people will recognize the value of holding Bitcoin, regardless of what economists tell them. I think this is enormously important. So whether or not fiat authorities like it, Bitcoin is now in free market competition with many other assets for the world's cash balances. It's a competition Bitcoin will win or lose in the market, not by the edicts of fiat economists, politicians, or bureaucrats. If it continues to capture a growing share of the world's cash balances, it continues to succeed. Doesn't matter what your university economists say or think. If Bitcoin's Bitcoin's growth continues, it continues to succeed as a cash, as a form of cash. Now, uh, most economists will say, well, so what? Cash is stupid. Nobody holds cash. You don't really need cash. You should hold stocks and bonds because that's better than cash. But that's, I think, is enormously inaccurate. In fact, if you think about the total addressable market for cash, 
Well, there's a, first of all, there's $90 trillion of fiat money supply around the world. So there's $90 trillion of money, of cash out there in the world. You know, even though the economists would like to tell you that cash doesn't matter, cash is trash, there's still $90 trillion worth of it. It's bigger than any other um, asset class, basically. Um, bonds, sovereign bonds are $90 trillion. Corporate bonds are $40 trillion. Gold is about $10 trillion. That's a total, total addressable market of $230 trillion. So Bitcoin currently is worth around $350 billion, so a little over 0.15%, which is basically a rounding error in its total, total addressable market. If we count it as $230, million, $230 trillion. However, a part of the demand for stocks, real estate, and art is also a store of value demand. A lot of people buy stocks not because they have a very compelling thesis and they've done due diligence on a company and they want to invest in it and they have a long-term understanding of the value proposition. A lot of people just hold stocks because it's, uh, they've been told this is the best way to protect against inflation. A lot of people buy real estate because of that. A lot of people invest in real estate not because they're good at investing in real estate. And a lot of people buy a bigger house than they need just because it's a better way to store your money than to put your money in a bank. So a big chunk of stocks, which are about $90 trillion, and real estate, which is about $280 trillion, and art, which is a few trillion dollars, a big chunk of all of that is also store of value demand. So Bitcoin could also eat that. However, we should say that on the other hand, perhaps demand for store of value is currently inflated precisely because current stores of value are inadequate. In other words, People are likely over-investing in cash today because cash is trash and it's not very good at holding on to its value. So you need to buy more of it in order to secure a specific amount of value into the future. In other words, if you want to provide yourself with enough money for your expenditure in 10 years' time, you need to buy a lot more of current cash assets because you would expect you know, some stocks are going to lose money, some bonds are going to default, some real estate is going to lose value. Uh, your cash is going to lose value. So in, you know, in, in under a gold standard, if you wanted to set, set some in 10 years, you could save that set some today. And you'll be confident that in 10 years' time, you're going to have it or have a little bit more than it. Today, you need to save maybe 50% more so that you can protect yourself against the inflation that happens over the next 10 years. Um, and the inflation and the risk that is involved with all these other assets, um, real estate, stocks, and bonds. So maybe... Demand for cash is inflated, but still, whatever it is, you know, if it's $230 trillion or 300 or 400 trillion or 100 trillion or 50 trillion dollars, that's still an enormous market. It's still basically the total addressable market potentially for Bitcoin is larger than any other market in the world. There's nothing bigger than money. It's the biggest market in the world. It's one half of every transaction. If Bitcoin can eat that, it's going to be enormous. It's enormously important. But monetary status is an emergent outcome of market choice by mo for monetary assets and not the result of economists' theoretical appraisals of monetary properties. Modern economists have never contemplated the possibility that free market competition could apply to money, the holiest of prerogatives for modern fiat governments that pay their salaries. You know, Remember, at the end of the day, every time you're listening to an economist from a fiat university, you're listening to somebody who gets paid from fiat money inflation. So, um, they're not going to have a very um, unbiased perspective on it. 
But with every passing day in which Bitcoin operates to the satisfaction of its millions of users, the full-time detractors and government-paid economists who constantly attack Bitcoin begin to sound like deranged conspiracy theorists obsessed with stopping happy customers from wearing a shoe brand that they like. You have happy customers using Bitcoin, and you have miners, and you have service providers being built around Bitcoin. You have people selling things for Bitcoin. You have an entire ecosystem built around it, and everybody involved is happy. And yet you have these economists bitching and moaning and shouting and screaming and saying, no, this is not going well according to our book's theories. It becomes more and more delusional and deranged as time passes by because that's not really how um, market economic reality is determined. As long as people continue to use it, it doesn't matter what people say and uh, think. So effectively, what we have on our hand is free market competition for cash balances. I think this is the most constructive way of understanding the rise of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a new form of cash, and it is reintroducing free market competition in cash balances after a century in which government had monopolized cash for their central banks. Only central banks could produce cash, but now we have a new form of cash that is outside the control of governments and central banks. So what is going to happen with this form of competition? Now, if we look at Bitcoin's growth during its first 12, 13 years, we see a very fast growth rate in its uh, price. And if this continues at the same rate, then Bitcoin is going to become the biggest cash in the world in a few years. If it continues at a fraction of the previous rate, then it's going to take a few decades. But, um, you know, I'm, I don't make any kind of predictions about what kind of growth rate Bitcoin is going to have. And um, I'm just here to discuss what happens if it continues to grow. You know, even if it appreciates at an average rate of, say, 10% per year or 20% per year over the next decade or two or three, compound annual growth rate adds up. You know, if every year it grows up, if it goes up a little bit, after 20, 30 years, it's going to go up significantly. So what happens then? Can it be stopped? Will it be stopped? And what happens if it isn't stopped? So, um, you know, the most common way in which people discuss it being stopped is the concept of governments attacking it. So what about government attacks in the case of Bitcoin? The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now.
And this seems the most obvious way that gov that Bitcoin would be stopped. Seems like it is out there competing with the government's most uh, important monopoly. Why would the government put up with this? And a lot has been written about the security model of Bitcoin, whether Bitcoin can survive government attack or not. Um, but I think, you know, uh, I don't have obviously the scope in this book to get into the technical aspects of how Bitcoin can be attacked. I think, you know, this would require many, many, many books and thousands of pages to discuss different kinds of attacks and how they can be um, carried out and what their likely success is. But what I think is worth getting into here is um, trying to explain the economic incentives for why these attacks might not work. So just an overarching economic explanation for the economic incentives that prevent these attacks from succeeding. So for people in the fiat world, you know, people who think reality is created through fiat, they think this is a straightforward thing. The only things that exist in life are, exist because government allows them to exist. And so all that government needs to do is just pass a law that says, this shouldn't exist and then it goes away, you know? Um, so government just says, don't smoke drugs and then drugs are canceled and then they just don't exist. But of course you see drugs continue to proliferate in places where they are banned. Um, and so I think it's a lot more complicated than just saying government bans it and then it's game over. In fact, Bitcoin is optimized for surviving a government ban. In fact, it is the underlying principle of designing Bitcoin is that it's made so that it does not require government approval for it to work. And so I'm trying in, in, in this chapter, what I try and do is just explain um, the economic incentive for why such attacks might not work to justify the overarching idea, which is, well, what if Bitcoin continues to operate? Bitcoin is extremely basic technology. Bitcoin is just one block of 1 to 3.7 megabytes of data every 10 minutes propagated to tens of thousands of computers worldwide. That's just what Bitcoin is. You know, there isn't a massive uh, server farm somewhere in the world for bit that is needed for Bitcoin to operate. There isn't this enormous infrastructure that is uh, essential for Bitcoin to operate. It's just about spreading, spreading one block of data between thousands of computers all over the world. And none of these computers is essential for Bitcoin to operate. So any of them can go offline. The network continues with all the other computers. So every 10 minutes, you just need to propagate one block of data, which usually is around between one to 3.7 megabytes of data. That's it. It's a very simple and very light program. It's distributed, it's decentralized. Billions of machines worldwide can join the network. There's no single central point of failure. So any laptop in the world, any smartphone, and many, many, many desktop computers, there's billions of laptops and computers and phones all over the world, any of them can join the network and can uh, receive the one megabyte or 3.7 megabytes of data every 10 minutes. There are literally billions of machines worldwide that are capable of joining this network. And none of them is essential for the operation of the network. And the transmission of data can be used using many different technologies. Mesh networks and radio as well can be used to propagate blocks. So it is very, very easy to use Bitcoin. It's very easy for um, any new kind of technology to enter into the world of, uh, any new device to enter into the network of Bitcoin. It's very easy to use Bitcoin, but on the other hand, 
it is very difficult to ban Bitcoin, primarily because of the economic incentive to use it. And here I recommend a book called 40 Centuries of Wage and Price Control, How Not to Fight Inflation. It's a great book. And it illustrates how, you know, they have data from 40 centuries, so 4,000 years, of governments trying to impose wage and price controls and how they've always failed at imposing these. And generally, bans and controls fail because government edicts cannot overturn economic reality. All they can do is change the economic cost-benefit to specific actions and cause people to adjust their behavior accordingly to still get the benefits while trying to avoid the costs. This is why price controls lead to shortages, black markets, skewing costs, violent conflict, and all manner of perverse and unintended consequences, but very rarely lead to achieving their intended goal. This is, I think, a very important thing to understand about economic incentives. That if people have an incentive for doing something, they're going to find a way around it and to do it. And so we see this happen with uh, black markets for everything all over the world. But in the case of Bitcoin, it's an extremely easy black market because it's something digital. You know, we see um, we see black markets in drugs that need to be grown and processed and transported all over the world. And the drug industry is still worth many billions of dollars worldwide, if maybe even trillions, who knows. And it continues to operate. Maybe um, maybe Bitcoin is similar to that, uh, in that it can continue to operate, even if it is banned. But I think uh, you need to keep in mind that with the case of Bitcoin, it's a lot easier to spend to send one megabyte of data and receive one megabyte of data every 10 minutes than it is to send and receive um, physical drugs that need to be processed and transported. And more generally, I think an important and underrated point, which I mentioned, is that attacking Bitcoin is attacking financial freedom. It emphasizes the value proposition of Bitcoin. In other words, if government bans banks from letting customers buy Bitcoin, that just emphasizes to customers the fact that the money in the bank is not their money. It is something that the government controls and the government tells them what to do with it. And that emphasizes Bitcoin's value proposition. Wouldn't it be nice if you had something that was actually your money that you could spend as you want? So trying to ban Bitcoin is likely just advertising its value proposition. If the economic incentive exists, bans only change the cost-benefit analysis, but they don't change the underlying economic incentives for getting into Bitcoin. And then... Um, this is the kind of overarching economic uh, incentive argument for why bans are complicated and might not succeed. But there's an even um, simpler political economy argument, which is that we see the popularity of Bitcoin growing all over the world. We see more and more politicians are supporting it. That We have congressmen and senators who are openly pro-Bitcoin. They hold Bitcoin and they're public about it. We have um, the SEC commissioner has studied the Bitcoin technology extensively and he talks about it being a real innovation. The Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, has recently spoken about this being an important economic innovation. It's something that's entered into the mainstream and has become accepted as a new technological idea. Um, think about, say, even you know, somebody like J.P. Morgan who spent years mocking Bitcoin and uh, talking about how it is useless. Now he offers it to his clients. Um, 
And there is a strong vocal minority that is strongly interested in Bitcoin. And I think if you look at the way that democratic politics function, um, generally small minorities manage to get their way. Small motivated minorities get their way on particular issues because the vast majority are indifferent to it. So for instance, the, the canonical example of this is corn farmers. Corn farmers in the US are less than 1% of the population, less than 0.5% of the population maybe. Very small number of Americans are corn farmers. And yet an enormous amount of money goes to subsidize corn farmers because for the vast majority of people, they don't care enough about subsidizing corn. It doesn't hurt them much. It hurts them for only a few dollars a year. But for the corn farmers, it's an enormously powerful uh, economic uh, subsidy. And so this concentrated benefits to a small group cause that small group to organize around that topic and to lobby for it effectively and to get their way because they are met with apathy from the majority of the rest. And so um, this is why really in democratic politics, motivated minorities get their way. And if the majority is indifferent, the minority is highly invested, the minority gets its way. We're beginning to get to that point, I think, in Bitcoin. It's the vast majority of people just don't care enough about Bitcoin. And the small minority of Bitcoiners care a lot about Bitcoin. So the political economy of it suggests that a ban is not extremely likely. Bitcoin might well be a genie that has grown beyond the ability of governments to put it back in its bottle. The secret is out. Millions of people worldwide have discovered this internet native hard money and are interested in using it. So this is why, you know, I argue perhaps that a government ban might not succeed. Another way of thinking about how Bitcoin might fail is software bugs. You know, what if uh, something turns out to be a flaw in the code? And here, the problem with this argument is that Bitcoin is open source software, which means that you have an infinitely large number of people going over the code at all times. And the famous line here by Linus Torvalds, who is the guy who started the Linux operating system, is that with enough eyeballs, all bugs are rendered shallow. You may get bugs, but they won't be serious bugs. They're shallow bugs. They're simple bugs to fix because you have enough eyeballs going on to it. And this has been true for a lot of open source software, which is uh, essential in the running of the modern world economy and the modern internet and modern technological infrastructure. You may think because of your laptop is running on Windows or Mac, you might think that, you know, it's Apple that has built your computer or is uh, Microsoft that has built the software for your computer. But in reality, even those companies, you know, they operate based on a, on, on a, um, on a very strong foundation of open source software. There's an enormous amount of open source software at the critical um, operational level of the internet uh, and of computing. So there's an enormous number of developers worldwide looking over open source software, and this is how it's developed. And it's true for operating systems. It's true for all kinds of different programs. And it's now becoming true for Bitcoin. And it's proven to be a surprisingly successful and robust model. Whereas proprietary software development deploys a few full-time, highly focused individuals, open source development allows anyone to contribute and gives all users of the software the choice to adopt anyone's contributions. Open source development is also a good example of Friedrich Hayek's concept of spontaneous order, or order that emerges not through any preconceived individual design, but through human action. People want to use software that does certain things, and so they 
work on it and they improve it and then they make small incremental changes to it and then others review those incremental changes and they add their own changes and through the process of changes variation and then selection by users users choose the additions that they like and ignore the additions that they don't like you get this extremely complex uh, spontaneous process of development which results in code that really nobody controls you know nobody really is uh, there isn't a single engineer that has designed uh, linux operating systems today they've resulted as uh, they, they've come about as a result of decades of work on this topic so there's a strong economic incentive to maintain bitcoin in working order on top of the open source idea is just the very strong economic incentive because it's not just the form of software that you're using to play games or that you're using for um, some work-related issues it's money so people who run Bitcoin have a very strong incentive to look at the code and to look at any codes and, and, and any problems with the code. And companies that run Bitcoin have a strong incentive to hire developers to keep looking at Bitcoin and overviewing the code. So the problem with any kind of attack on Bitcoin, um, any software attack on Bitcoin, is that it is going to be a top-down top design with a few focused and highly skilled individuals trying to execute it. But Bitcoin's defense consists of many thousands of users and coders who are constantly vigilant and defending the network against anything bad happening to it. So bugs can exist and emerge, but they are likely to be detected and fixed quickly because of the economic incentive. Now, a third way in which Bitcoin could fail, and this, I think, I, I mentioned this in the Bitcoin standard, I think it's likely that maybe the most serious threat to Bitcoin, but it's also extremely unrealistic, is what if governments go back on a gold standard? I think a gold standard is an extremely serious threat to Bitcoin because it undermines the economic incentive for using Bitcoin. And this is this is me thinking as an economist rather than the statist thinking. You know, the statist way of looking at Bitcoin is, oh, people are using Bitcoin. Well, then let's ban Bitcoin and then they stop using it. That's the statist way of thinking. The economic way of thinking is people are using Bitcoin. What is the incentive for them to use it? If you ban it, you're not taking away the incentive to use it. But how, what could you do to undermine the incentive? And the incentive that would, the, and the action that would undermine the incentive for using Bitcoin, in my opinion, would be a return to sound monetary policy and a return to banking freedom. If you had the 19th century monetary system, you know, of the late 19th century, if you had the uh, gold standard of 1895 today, I think the incentive for people to use Bitcoin would be severely undermined. If people have the ability to save their wealth in a form of money that is hard for governments to produce, like gold, and if banks were a free market where there weren't central banks that had enormous amount of influence over individual banks, so that banks could offer their customers privacy and they could offer them um, the ability to conduct transactions without uh, being extremely easily suspect to government censorship, then that I would believe will severely undermine um, the case for using Bitcoin. But of course, that's an extremely unrealistic thing. It's asking governments to give up on their central bank, which is not going to happen. I mean, it's, it, it, it would be achieving the uh, main advantage of Bitcoin without Bitcoin. And so it would really be a win for Bitcoin, but I don't really see it happening. And I think really a, bit, a gold standard is the best example for what they could do. You know, they could do it theoretically with any kind of fiat money where they could just say, 
um, we're fixing the amount of uh, money supply and we're not going to be engaging in any inflation or we're only going to do, say, 0.5% inflation per year. They could commit to something like this in principle, but it's very hard to defect from it. The most credible way that they could commit to a hard monetary policy would be to um, uh, make their money redeemable in gold. If you can go to the government and exchange their money with gold at all times, that would be the thing that would inspire the most confidence in their monetary policy. And I think, you know, the reason that this is a serious threat is that gold currently has, uh, at the time of writing, about uh, 30 times as much liquidity as uh, Bitcoin. So there's about $10 trillion of gold around the world. There's $300 billion of Bitcoin. So there's 30 times as much gold as there is Bitcoin. So Bitcoin already... Uh, I mean, gold already has a lot more saleability than Bitcoin. Uh, if you remember the discussion of saleability in the earlier chapters and the size of cash balances, gold has a much larger cash balances. And so if governments were to peg their currencies to gold, the valuation of gold, I believe, would rise significantly. And so the size of gold liquidity would be enormously larger than Bitcoin. And the economies of scale would likely um, stop Bitcoin's growth at the current rate that it is going. It's not difficult also to imagine the development of highly convenient payment technologies backed by gold. You know, everything that we can do digitally, we can do with physical gold at the back end with only having physical settlement of gold being carried out. Sure, it is expensive as we've discussed in the book, but it's probably worth it. Um, because, um, you know, if governments wanted to maintain some kind of control over their monetary system, then it might be worth it for them to do that. But, um, you know, if governments had a low time preference, if they might, they might conclude that the pain of voluntarily adopting a gold standard today would be less severe than a future where they lose monetary status to Bitcoin completely. But that seems fanciful to any observer of modern governments. If you look at governments today, they don't really think about what they want 10 years from now and 20 years from now. They're primarily thinking about the next election cycle. And yet, realistic, so realistically, this isn't going to happen, let's face it. Governments are not going to give up on the money printer anytime soon, voluntarily. It's going to have to be pried away from them. And even if it does happen... I think there's good reason to believe that it will stall Bitcoin, it will slow Bitcoin's growth, but I don't think it will kill Bitcoin completely because um, gold's stock to flow is going to be lower than that of Bitcoin over the next couple of years. So in other words, Bitcoin's supply growth rate is going to drop below that supply growth rate of Bitcoin, of gold. So over the next 50 years, Bitcoin's supply is only going to grow about 10%. Over the next 50 years, gold supply is likely going to triple or quadruple. Gold's basically supply doubles every 50 years or so, um, or every 30, 50 years, depending on the uh, exact growth rate. But if, if we assume that the growth rate is 2%, then, Bitcoin then gold supply doubles every 35 years. So in 35 years, we're going to have twice as much gold as we have today. We're only going to have about 10% more Bitcoin than we have today. A huge difference. So from 100% growth in 35 years to 10% growth in 35 years. That means holding on to Bitcoin today still is something that makes sense. Maybe the price crashes if something like a gold standard is implemented. 
but um, even if the price crashes, it's likely to still recover and rise in the future because the supply continues to increase at a much lower rate than gold over time. So, um, and of course, you know that uh, that's just the uh, um, that's just the, the the scarcity argument. There's also, of course, the political argument. If they can go on a gold standard, they can also go off a gold standard. And uh, Bitcoin is the only thing that you can own yourself. They can still confiscate your gold at some point. You know, if they if they use the gold standard to kill Bitcoin, what's to stop them from then going and reconfiscating your gold and doing the twentieth century all over again? So it doesn't seem to me like uh, even a move to the gold standard would be enough to kill demand for Bitcoin completely. So the above analysis does not constitute an ironclad prediction of Bitcoin's inevitable success, but it should at least suggest that its continued long-term survivor is a distinct and realistic possibility. So how would Bitcoin grow in a fiat world? There are several scenarios to keep in mind for how Bitcoin could grow in a fiat world. The first one is the idea of central bank adoption. You know, what if central banks just uh, realize that this is better money and adopt it and start using it as their money? And there is a strong case to be made for central bank adoption of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is neutral money and it's international settlement that nobody controls. If you're a central bank, you uh, you can see the value of being able to make payments with other central banks with other countries without having to go through any one particular central bank like the fed or the european central bank and without having to hold the currency of another central bank you are not tied at the hip with the monetary policy and the politics of another central bank you become uh, sovereign effectively because you have your own money too um, and you have your own neutral money that you can use so that's, I think, the case um, for it. And then, of course, you have the idea that it appreciates and that, for, that will therefore improve your balance of payments. You know, if your cash balance, if your international cash, ba- cash balance appreciates in value, that allows you to buy more things from foreigners without suffering economic problems. And um, Bitcoin, another benefit of it is that it allows your citizens to save without debt having to be created you can just make more debt you can make more savings for your citizens without having to create debt which is the problem that the fiat system is running into right now where everybody is indebted up to their eyeballs but people need to keep buying debt because buying debt is the way in which they save because bonds are the alternative to holding cash so there is a case for why central banks would want to adopt it but in my mind there's a stronger case for why they will not adopt it um, and the basic idea is, as I think of it, Bitcoin is an alternative to central banks. So central banks don't have much use for it. If you're a central bank, you already control payment rails. You are already able to spend money internationally. You don't see the value in an alternative for you. You know, the use case for wanting to use a money when you control the money is not very obvious. And um, you might hear say, well, Central banks that are enemies of the U.S. love fiat, uh, don't like to be using the United States dollar and the United States clearance mechanisms. Maybe. However, I think they like having their own fiat currencies more than they hate the U.S. dollars. And uh, we see this, you know, it isn't as if 
these governments that complain about the United States uh, monetary policy and inflation, it isn't as if they are extremely financially responsible. They also engage in inflation. Their currencies also decline in value. And they don't seem to me as if they're extremely keen on moving to a world of fiscal and monetary responsibility. For governments that are allied with the U.S. or friendly with the U.S. and members of the IMF, yeah, the IMF bans their members from backing their currencies with gold. You cannot go on a gold standard and be an IMF member. And so don't expect them to be very keen to get governments to back their currencies with Bitcoin or to use Bitcoin as their national currency. But I think the deeper and more um, serious uh, objection to why central banks won't, to why central banks could adopt Bitcoin is the fact that central banks are staffed entirely by believers in government control over money. Bitcoin is just simply unthinkable. Bitcoin is something that is never going to make sense to somebody who works in a central bank. Well, maybe not never. But people who work in central banks are going to be the last that understand Bitcoin and the last that get the value proposition because in their mind, Bitcoin just doesn't make sense. Money is something that the government creates. Money is something that the government is able to produce. And therefore, in their mind, the idea of government of money existing outside of the control of government is unthinkable. So this is why I think central banks will be the last people to take Bitcoin seriously. And further, Bitcoin requires low time preference. Bitcoin requires you to think of the long term, to think of a money that holds on to its value because of its supply, not because of a short-term intervention by a central planner. You don't find that kind of mentality in abundance in most governments. I don't see governments uh, rushing to adopt Bitcoin. Now, since uh, when I started writing this book, this was, um, this was there. And then as I was finishing up the book, El Salvador announced that they want to start adopting um, Bitcoin as legal tender. And so... I think that's kind of a counter to this point. However, it's worth remembering El Salvador is a country without a currency. They don't have their own currency, so they don't have a central bank. And so it might make sense for them, but it's still I don't think it makes sense for the major central banks of the world because the major central banks of the world have their own currencies and they benefit enormously from having that privilege. I don't see them as being open-minded to the idea of moving to a hard money. And that's why I continue to think that Bitcoin will continue to grow as an alternative to central banks and not an asset for them. So then if it continues to grow as an alternative central bank, what does that mean? What are we going to see? Well, the most common scenario that I would think you would find among people who are uh, pro-Bitcoin or who like Bitcoin or understand Bitcoin is hyperinflation. We're going to get hyperinflation and Bitcoin is going to destroy national currencies because people will dump their dollars in order to buy Bitcoin. And writing the fiat standard has made me think of strong reasons why that might not be the case. And here I try to, I'd like to make the case for why Bitcoin doesn't cause hyperinflation. And I think it's a very important point that I don't believe anybody has mentioned. Um, and I think it's something that comes through from the analysis of the fiat standard, um, which has to do with the way in which fiat money is created and the way in which um, demand for money is changed because of Bitcoin. The very important to point to keep in mind is that national currencies collapse not because demand for them collapses. They collapse because supply increases massively. So if you look at all the instances of hyperinflation 
and you look at the money supply, you see hyperinflation only happens when there's a very quick and large increase in the money supply. It doesn't happen because of a sudden collapse in demand for the money. Uh, the demand is going to be reduced, but the reduction in demand is gradual. You know, there's a 10% reduction in demand maybe in a year or 20 or 30%, but the reduction in the value of the currency is much faster, much quicker, and it corresponds more accurately to the increase in the supply of money. So if you look at the examples of recent hyperinflations or uh, old hyperinflations, you know, you look at Lebanon recently, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, you see the hyperinflation was preceded by a very fast increase in the money supply. And in particular, in the case of Lebanon, I know the money supply increase was not the credit creation of the banking system. It was the printing of physical notes. They printed a large amount of physical notes in order to pay off government salaries. And these notes increased in supply enormously and the value of the currency crashed very quickly. So currencies collapse because the supply rises, not because demand is reduced. The reduction in demand is nowhere near as drastic as the reduction in the value. It cannot explain it because people, you know, they still need to pay their taxes in their local currency, whereas they don't, uh, whereas, you know, even, even if they will shift some of their demand to holding other currencies, they still need to hold the national currency. And so the reduction in the demand does not correspond to the reduction in the value of the currency. The thing that does correspond is the increase in the supply. So Bitcoin can't increase the supply of fiat currency. But this is really the key point for me, is to try and understand the impact of Bitcoin on the supply of fiat currency. And I think, uh, counterintuitively, Bitcoin actually has a uh, deflationary impact in that it leads to the reduction of the creation of dollars and fiat currencies because yes the, the the common way in which people think about it is okay bitcoin is going to reduce the supply the demand for holding fiat money and because people are going to hold less fiat money the value of fiat is going to collapse and we're going to have hyperinflation i don't think that's the case a reduction in demand is not going to translate into hyperinflation the important thing is for hyperinflation to happen you need to have an increase in the creation of money but Bitcoin actually reduces the incentive for the creation of fiat. This is really a very, very important point. It's, it's effectively the punchline of this book. You know, the reason everything that we studied about how fiat works, fiat mining in chapter three, the reality or chapter four, I think, and the realities of how the fiat monetary system functions, all of that stuff leads us to this punchline. This is, I think, the most important um, conclusion from this book. And that is the idea that Bitcoin can grow as a monetary upgrade and it can cause a debt jubilee rather than hyperinflation. So the case for why Bitcoin might not cause hyperinflation is that hyperinflation has always been the result of large increases in the money supply and not a sudden decline in money demand. So Venezuelans still need bolivars to pay taxes. So demand has not dropped by a factor of a million. Supply of money has increased by a factor of a million. When you see the complete collapse in the value of the currency, it corresponds to the increase in the supply, not in the reduction of the demand. So why would Bitcoin not cause hyperinflation? Well, maybe Bitcoin will reduce the demand for holding US dollars, but it also reduces the demand for holding debt instruments, which reduces money creation. Remember, fiat is mined through creation of debt. So 
if people don't want to hold fiat debt because they don't want to hold cash balances in bonds, instead they want to hold Bitcoin, that means less demand for fiat creation. That means less fiat money is created. So it's true that Bitcoiners will want to hold fewer, fewer dollars, but they will also want to hold fewer debt instruments and debt instruments are what creates the dollars. And so in this regard, think about the example of, um, uh, you know, from the earlier chapters when we were discussing how bonds are essentially the new substitute for cash. The new alternative to holding cash is that you hold government bonds because they don't have equity risk and they have the lowest default risk. And so therefore they are the best alternative to holding on to cash. And so people hold a lot more bonds than they hold cash. There is a particular, you know, or more accurately, the people who hold cash is cash is held in small balances by many people, but real wealth is held in bonds. You know, rich people and rich financial institutions, they don't have billions of dollars of cash sitting around in a safe, and they don't have billions of dollars of money sitting in a bank account and a checking account. They hold a lot more government bonds than they hold cash. And so if Bitcoin is to replace cash. It's not just going to replace the demand for dollars as bills, which is not that significant. It's also going to replace demand for holding debt instruments. And so it's going to reduce the incentive for the creation of debt. So Bitcoin does not just compete with fiat currency for cash asset demand. It also competes with fiat debt. And so the devaluation of fiat money drives demand for debt instruments that are not exposed to equity risk and which offer returns that compensate for inflation. So the demand for a store of value is what leads to this enormous issuance of debt. If more individuals and companies start to hold Bitcoin instead of debt instruments on their balance sheets, that would reduce the demand for credit creation, reducing fiat money creation, making hyperinflation less likely. In a world of artificially low interest rates and easy fiat money that is expected to constantly devalue, individuals are likely to borrow rather than save. The discovery of Bitcoin gives individuals and corporations the chance to save in a hard asset that appreciates over time, making them less likely to need to borrow to meet their major expenses. So this, I think, is an enormously significant uh, development of how Bitcoin operates. And it's why I think things might not be so nasty in the growth of Bitcoin. The second point is that Bitcoin reduces the incentive to borrow, which also reduces money creation. So on the one hand, it reduces your incentive to want to hold on to debt asset as your saving, as your checking account. On the second hand, it also reduces your incentive to want to borrow in order to finance your expenditures. If you can save in hard money that appreciates, you are less likely to borrow to finance large expenditures. With a reduction in the demand for borrowing and a reduction in the demand for lending, holding debt instruments, Bitcoin reduces the creation of money arguably more than it reduces the demand for fiat money. That's, I think, really the key point to understand that Bitcoin replaces cash balances and therefore so it replaces the mechanism for the creation of money and incentivizes less and less creation of fiat money. And the third point, um, remember we said in fiat, mining is lending. This makes fiat easier than Bitcoin, but also makes it hard for fiat to expand at hyperinflationary speeds. Yes, fiat mining is 
much more inflationary than Bitcoin currently. You know, Bitcoin currently increases at around one and a half to two percent per year in terms of its supply. But fiat money increases at six, seven, eight, ten, twenty, fifteen percent per year. But generally, as long as fiat is run as a credit monetary system and money is created through credit issuance and mining is done through fiat um, credit loans, then fiat money does not expand at hyperinflationary speeds. In order to get hyperinflation, you need to have actual physical printing. That's why we've only had 60 hyperinflations in the fiat century, approximately 60. And these hyperinflations only happen after money creation is separated from credit creation through the physical printing of physical dollar bills and physical fiat money bills, like the example of Zimbabwe and Lebanon and Venezuela. Because credit creation it's just difficult to make a lot of to issue a lot of loans banks can't just issue infinitely large numbers of loans and even if they tried credit creation is self-correcting it's effectively the equivalent of fiat's difficulty adjustment as i mentioned in the chapter on fiat mining in that credit creation if you create a lot of credit you've created a lot of businesses that are out there that have a lot of money and that are out there and spending that money it doesn't just translate to very high inflation. It is going to translate into a business cycle first. There's going to be a rise in prices, but then there's going to be a point at which a lot of these businesses that were financed with the fake credit are going to default, are going to go out of business, are going to go bankrupt. And then that's going to destroy a lot of the money supply. So this process of money creation and destruction is kind of ensuring that the money creation doesn't get way too out of hand. That's why fiat credit creation doesn't get hyperinflationary very quickly. When fiat credit creation expands, it causes unsustainable speculative bubbles, which collapse and bring money supply down. So this is why fiat monetary system survives so long, because the growth rate, particularly in the more responsible economies where the money creation isn't completely in the hand of governments to just pay their own bills the banking system is out there creating money yes it's more inflationary than gold it's more inflationary than bitcoin but it's not that much more inflationary it's only six seven eight ten percent or so per year it's not 50 percent per year it's not 500 percent per year because you just can't make that much credit and if you tried all that you're going to do is that you're going to bring about a lot of inflation a lot of deflationary crashes and bankruptcies that bring down the money supply. Which is why I like to say, you know, the business cycle is the brutal and highly inefficient fiat equivalent of Bitcoin's difficulty adjustment. If credit expands too quickly, it causes speculative bubbles in particular sectors of the economy, like the stock market, housing, or high-tech sector. As investments in these sectors increase, assets become overpriced beyond what the fundamentals of their balance sheets imply. This incentivizes the production of more financial assets causing the price of the assets to eventually fall, liquidating a lot of loans and contracting the money supply. So it's a self-correcting mechanism in a way. And that's why I think it's not extremely likely to see the hyperinflation in the fiat credit system. Another aspect here to keep in mind is that the problem of hyperinflation is not so much just the destruction of the value of money, even though that is catastrophic for the people who hold the money, but it is a bigger problem because the division of labor in society is destroyed without money. But Bitcoin offers us an alternative monetary system available to anyone who needs it, therefore making it like a safety net for hyperinflation. If we do get a kind of hyperinflation, 
people who are able to use Bitcoin are going to be able to get around the horrible damages from hyperinflation because they can use that money to pay their bills. So as national currencies fall in value, Bitcoin is the safety net that allows users to continue to trade and engage in the division of labor. So rather than a threat that can destroy fiat money, Bitcoin may turn out to be the neat technological solution that allows fiat to unwind peacefully. Bitcoin simultaneously reduces fiat demand and the incentive to create more fiat supply. It is like someone skillfully and neatly dismantling the fiat house of cards into a deck of cards by removing each set of two cards leaning on each other at the same time. The card of fiat demand and the card of fiat supply. That's how you take apart the house of cards. That's how you prevent it from crashing down. Each layer of the house of cards is two cards leaning against each other. You know, they're very flimsy, but it's the two cards you can think of them as the supply for fiat and the demand for fiat. If one of these goes up or down too drastically, the card, the house of cards falls down. But Bitcoin is not just taking away the demand for holding fiat, it's taking away the demand for the creation of fiat. So I think it's highly likely to reduce the size of the fiat economy without causing a big crash. Well, maybe highly likely is an over-exaggeration, but I think there is a distinct possibility that it could reduce the importance and the size of the fiat economy without resulting in a massive crash. So if the governments of advanced economies, which have done a semi-respectable job in managing their currencies over the past few decades, manage this process wisely, they would allow the credit and money creation to happen naturally. The fiat-denominated economy would continue to shrink in relation to the Bitcoin economy as more people upgrade to the superior, harder, and faster monetary asset. The fiat monetary system could operate for the next 50 years in the same way it has operated for the last 50. But by the end of the next 50 years, it may well be a tiny fraction of the size of the Bitcoin monetary system. This is one way we can imagine the growth of Bitcoin. So rather than going out with a bang, the current global monetary system would just slowly and naturally get downsized into irrelevance as its currencies lose their value and market share to Bitcoin. So rather than an attack on the fiat system, Bitcoin might allow the fiat economy an exit from its spiral into ever more debt slavery as it devalues the fiat debt that saddles everyone in the fiat system. If more people move to Bitcoin and fiat-denominated debt devalues in real terms, the vast majority of the world's economy benefits enormously from the devaluation of its obligations. The sooner one upgrades to the Bitcoin economy, the sooner their fiat debts become insignificant. I believe this is an extremely compelling case, and I think it's something that deserves more consideration. Most people think Bitcoin is either going to die or we're going to or fiat is going to die. This is the scenario of coexistence effectively where they could both continue to work for the next 50 years without either of them dying and i think there's a distinct possibility that it might happen and fiat's inflation is the practical transition plan effectively you know people sometimes ask me what is the transition plan from fiat to bitcoin and that's kind of the motivating question for writing the fiat standard i think fiat inflation is the practical transition plan everyone is in debt everyone is better off when debt is devalued the sooner you move to Bitcoin, the better off you will be because your savings appreciate as your debt devalues. And the more people figure this out, the faster it happens. So in a world in which we move toward the world, uh, if we move toward the world in which savings appreciate over time, rather than debt uh, growing, we would see savings grow. 
And so people will finance spending on consumer goods like houses and cars from their savings. People will finance their businesses from savings rather than by borrowing. So Bitcoin can turn the masses of debt slaves to savers, entrepreneurs, and capitalists. And the consequences to human flourishing are far-reaching. Savers allocate capital rather than central planners. That, I think, would be an enormously beneficial thing for humanity. Look at anything that is centrally planned and see how inefficient it is. Imagine if capital was in the hand of savers all over the world to allocate it as they see fit rather than having bureaucrats and central planners allocate it. We'll likely have many more smaller firms than fewer larger firms. Think about the La Belle Epoque in human history. You know, Think about the golden era of the gold standard when we had all of these amazing innovations which I discuss in the Bitcoin standard in chapter uh, 5, I think, of the Bitcoin standard on time preference. It's very underrated how that really was the golden age of innovation and there's quantitative and qualitative evidence that strongly suggests this was the most innovative period of human history, and which I discuss in detail on the Bitcoin standard. I urge you to look into it. But at that point, everybody had savings in gold. Gold appreciated, people held their gold, and their gold held on to its value. And they would use those savings to finance their ideas. I'm, my favorite example is the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers were just two bicycle shop owners. With their savings, with their spare money that they put aside from their profits of running their bicycle shop, they invested in building an airplane. And they weren't the only ones. There were hundreds and thousands of people out there trying to make airplanes work. And these guys managed to make it happen. They did it with their savings. I believe a world in which we go back to hard money and savings appreciating rather than debt is a world in which we get many more Wright brothers experimenting with their savings, having the ability to let their ideas run rather than having to rely on central planners financing them. So this kind of rosy transition scenario from a Bitcoin standard to a from a fiat standard to a gold, to a Bitcoin standard is that it leads to a growing parallel monetary economy and financial system, which offers its adopters significant benefits for upgrading to it. Individuals, businesses, and local governments are likely to gradually migrate to this monetary system. Eventually, the only part of the economy that would remain wedded to government money would be government itself. And the parts of the economy that are dependent on government money, both of whose contribution to valuable economic production is approximately zero let's face it um, if anything that government produced was valued by the market it would be produced on the market the fact that it is produced by government tells us that the market doesn't want to pay for it so we're gonna witness in my opinion i think a free market economy build around bitcoin and grow and attract innovators and producers and um, real production whereas um the sclerotic old centrally planned economy will effectively wither away and slowly shrink into irrelevance. This is the rosy scenario. This is the kind of the rosy scenario of imagining it. Now, obviously, this isn't, um, this isn't something that is certain, and I don't argue that this is how it's going to happen. I'm just sort of exploring different scenarios. But I think this is worth exploring because very few people think about it and very few people have considered it. And I think this is an, or, an original contribution that this book makes. However, I'm going to consider two things that could derail this scenario, that could stop this uh, orderly, rosy transition from taking place. One such thing is the idea of speculative attacks against fiat currency. 
we are unlikely to see this develop um, smoothly and easily when these two fiat and Bitcoin monetary systems coexist with each other because of the likelihood of people carrying out speculative attacks. So what is a speculative attack? And Pierre Rochard has written a paper about how Bitcoin can be used to speculatively attack fiat money back in 2013, I think, which I highly recommend reading. You know, if you think this is delusional today, <laughs> Pierre Rochard was talking about it almost 10 years ago. So it's a lot, um, it's, 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 it's a lot uh, braver for him to mention that scenario, but I think it's extremely astute and extremely... Um, it's extremely far-reaching in its implications. So um, what is a speculative attack? A speculative attack is when you borrow a weak currency to buy a hard currency. When you borrow the weak currency, you increase the supply because cr borrowing increases the supply, you know, fiat mining. When you borrow from um, a weak currency, you're making the bank issue more of that currency so you're increasing the supply and then you sell that currency that you borrowed and you use it to buy the hard currency so what you're doing is you're lowering the price of the um, currency that you just bought that you just sold and you're raising the price of the hard currency which you just bought and of course the hard currency increases at a lower rate whereas the weak currency increases at a higher rate that's the reason why you would carry out this speculative attack so you're effectively using your financial weight to pile on the um, differential between the two monetary systems. On the one hand, we have the monetary system with a weak currency that is in creating more and more money. You magnify that by letting it create more money, and then you sell that, and you buy the hard currency, which is created at a lower rate. So that likely exacerbates the devaluation of the weak currency and amplifies the the, the um, increase in valuation of the hard currency. And so therefore, when you need to pay back your loan, you're having to make the payment back in devalued currency. And that's why this thing becomes profitable. You buy the hard currency, which appreciates, and then you sell some of it in order to pay back your loan in the devalued currency and you make a decent profit. This is what George Soros did to break the Bank of England in 1991, I think, or 1992. And this is what um, hedge funds are doing all the time. They're constantly out there um, trying to mess around with uh, central banks that are ir irresponsible and um, making them pay for their irresponsibility. Of course, a lot of people like to blame the hedge funds for this and they like to blame George Soros for it, but I think that misses the point. The reason that George Soros can get away with doing this is because he is um, playing on the weaknesses that these central banks are making themselves you know they're the ones who create these weaknesses for their monetary system so if we continue to have more and more of this kind of speculative attack where people borrow fiat in order to buy bitcoin that's likely to accelerate the process massively we don't we won't have the luxury of a slow transition we're going to witness everybody want to do this everybody's going to want to borrow fiat fiat's going to crash more and more bitcoin is going to rise but um I can't see this. I think there, is, there are um, things that could stop this. I think there's more two main factors that I mentioned in the book and one third one which I thought about after writing the book, which I'll add now. Uh, the first one is, as more companies and rich individuals borrow fiat to buy Bitcoin, the speculative attack gathers strength. But this is 
easy in a world where everyone wants to hold debt assets and most cannot hold Bitcoin. When people are not believing in Bitcoin, then yeah, there's a lot of money to be borrowed out there. But that's not very stable. Eventually, lenders are going to realize, you know, why should I lend money to somebody who's going to use it to buy Bitcoin when I could just buy Bitcoin myself? It's, uh, you know, I then benefit from all the appreciation. Why should I just take on the risk of default without taking on all the benefits of it? So it's unlikely that uh, perhaps it is unlikely that lenders will want to continue to lend in this system. And I think there's also the case of government intervention in this situation. It's not entirely impossible to imagine that governments are going to step in and say, you cannot borrow fiat if you own Bitcoin. They're going to want to stop you from carrying out speculative attacks. They're going to segregate capital markets where borrowing fiat is only available for people who don't buy Bitcoin. I think that's not entirely out of the question. And this is a kind of um, angle of attack that governments would carry out against Bitcoin if they think that it's growing too fast. And a third factor that I would mention now is the massive volatility of Bitcoin is going to make it hard for more people to borrow. I think we saw a lot of the people who borrowed Bitcoin, borrowed to buy Bitcoin over the last year or so, have suffered enormously um, because of the crash in Bitcoin's price. And there's no guarantee that this volatility is going to die. And therefore, I would imagine that in the future, um, it's not going to be as easy to borrow Bitcoin as it was over the last year. Perhaps, perhaps not. So that's one way in which the scenario could be derailed, speculative attacks. But as I said, there's reasons why we might not see that. And the final way in which I think uh, the serious threat to this kind of rosy transition scenario is the emergence of central banking, digital currencies. Now, when I started writing the book, my, exp my um, idea of what central bank digital currencies was, was that it's just vaporware. It's just um, buzzwords being produced by central banks who want to sound like they are innovative. Fiat money is predominantly digital. Fiat itself is a central bank digital currency, even though they print some of it uh, into pieces of paper, the vast majority of it is a digital currency. But I think central bank digital currencies can really change everything for fiat money and for Bitcoin, um, because they change the way that fiat money works fundamentally in a way that has enormous implications for Bitcoin. And um, so we can obviously safely ignore the propaganda of fiat regimes about wanting to introduce central bank digital currencies for convenience and speed. That's clearly not the issue here. CBDCs are optimized for surveillance, political patronage, and economic central planning. They increase the efficiency of inflation, taxation, and surveillance. And that is destructive for the market economy. It's good for central banks. It's good for governments. It's terrible for markets. It's terrible for capitalism. It's terrible for individuals. Um, and I think the best way of understanding what central banks are, it's just a digital form of Goss Bank, the Soviet Union's only bank. Under the Soviet Union, you had one bank and everybody had an account with that bank and it decided everything for everybody. It decided who got to do anything. Everything was in the hand of the Goss Bank. It eliminates the private banking industry, and I think that's really the real threat of central bank digital currencies. Um, the biggest loser from central bank digital currencies would not be Bitcoin. It would be the private banking industry, which I think is also the biggest resistance to central bank digital currencies because, you know, um, uh, banks aren't exactly walkovers. They are politically and economically very influential, 
And it's not going to be easy for governments to just um, neuter them completely. So I think that is a real threat to them. However, if central bank digital currencies go ahead in the way in which they are imagined, everybody has a bank account with the central bank. The central bank can control the money supply. The central bank can control and censor transactions. They decide how much money you get to spend and how much money you spend on whatever good. I think that completely changes the mechanism for fiat money creation. It moves fiat money from being credit money to being pure fiat money in real terms. And that, I think, is enormously significant. Remember when I was discussing the examples of hyperinflation, we said, look at the examples of hyperinflation in fiat. They never happen in a purely fiat credit system. They happen in a fiat credit system that then has a central bank literally print large amounts of money. When these large amounts of money are printed, that money supply increases massively, and then the economic consequences are enormous. So it changes the mechanism for create. If central bank digital currencies allow central banks to just create money by fiat directly, hand out money to individuals, just give the money to people um, and print it and give it to people, well, then that's going to massively change the way that fiat currency operates because it destroys the difficulty adjustment that I mentioned earlier. It eliminates the credit cycle. We go to something very similar to physical money printing. Rather than fiat being mined from loans, fiat will be created by fiat. It's just no limit on how much you can create more of it. And there's no credit cycle to uh, purge the excess money creation every few years and keep the money growth in relative uh, check basically you're just going to get straight up inflation like with physical money printing that makes the rosy transition scenario less and less likely and makes it more likely that we get hyperinflation um, we already see you know quantitative easing and universal basic income are already taking us in the direction of removing fiat's difficulty adjustment they're already in this way in the way in which particularly universal basic income perhaps more than quantitative easing they're taking us in the direction of money creation becoming more and more uh, uh, just arbitrary rather than related to credit issuance. And that may, means government spending will have even less restraint than what it has now. You know, governments today still need to go to credit markets and they still need to watch their credit ratings. And if, um, if they borrow too much, then that's a signal that things might be a problem and they don't want to anger credit markets too much. But in a CBDC world, they don't have to worry about credit markets anymore. They can just print their money that they need and buy whatever they want. And so I think that's going to cause serious price rises. But the advantage for central bank digital currencies, again, when it comes to inflation, is that they allow governments to centrally plan prices in a way that they couldn't with regular fiat money that we have today. Because of their ability to carry out enormous amounts of surveillance with central bank digital currencies, that's going to do a good job in um, basically limiting the extent of price rises. And this is where the chapters of 8, 9, and 10 of this book are going to come in handy. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 primarily focused on how inflation was dealt with in the 1970s. And basically the argument that I advanced was the way that they managed to bring down inflation was to try and convince people to stop using 
meat and fuel. Stop eating meat and stop consuming uh, hydrocarbon fuels because those things are highly price sensitive and they reflect inflation very quickly. If you move away from meat and you start eating industrial waste, and if you move away from oil and gas and start consuming wind and solar using pre-industrial technologies, well, inflation becomes a lot more tolerable. Inflation is a lot less of a problem when you substitute your meat with soy and um, bugs and insects. And inflation becomes a lot more tolerable when you no longer need to drive and you're stuck at home because you're locked down. And uh, when your uh, electricity comes from a windmill, so you only get a few hours of electricity every day, uh, there's less fuel involved there. And this is what, why we see this enormously popular uh, drive to um, promote these ideas. So how will fiat authorities manage rising inflation with central bank digital currencies with totalitarian control of spending? We saw in chapters 8, 9, and 10 how inflation motivated the development of nutrition, medicine, and climate pseudosciences, which all conclude that you need to reduce your consumption of economic goods whose prices rise quickly, mainly meat and hydrocarbon fuels. As central bank digital currencies bring faster inflation, they would allow more effective control mechanisms on spending. With central bank digital currencies, it's not just about propaganda fooling you into eating garbage and consuming less fuel. It can force you by preventing you from spending money on these things. So we, there can't be much inflation if your consumption of fuels and meat is limited by central bank digital currencies. And you know, if, if, this, if, the, if your central bank digital currency will only allow you to buy 100 grams of meat every month, the price of meat is not going to be very high. If central bank digital currency only allows you to drive your car, buy enough fuel to drive your car for uh, one hour every week, the price of oil is not going to be very high because people can't buy it. So central control can protect the currency from collapse. If you look at a lot of the Soviet and socialist republics, they didn't experience high inflation. They just had empty shelves. If you don't eat... There isn't inflation. Uh, so the inflation only manifested after the collapse of the Soviet Union when they tried to impose a free market uh, system, or not impose, when they had a free market monetary system. That's when it reflected on the prices. But before that, prices were under control because spending was under control. You couldn't buy meat, and so therefore the price of meat was low. So yeah, meat was very cheap in the Soviet Union, but you just couldn't get it. And I think this is where CBDCs are threatening to take the world. This is the only way to understand the growing popularity of the pseudosciences which want to convince you that not eating meat and not burning fuel will save the planet. This is why these completely idiotic pseudosciences are so popular. There's no scientific basis for believing that your consumption of fuel is going to destroy the planet. There is no climate crisis. The cow that you eat is not going to destroy planet Earth. Cow farts are not an existential threat to humanity or Earth. It's an existential threat to <laughs> the price level, to the CPI. So in order to keep CPI down, in order to maintain the illusion of no inflation, you're just going to need to stop eating those things. And that's why these pseudosciences are extremely popular. And of course, it's no coincidence that these pseudosciences are entirely financed by inflationary fiat money. And their only purpose is to preserve inflationary fiat money. This is why I like to call it fiat science. It's financed by fiat, 
and it'll force you to accept the ramification of its conclusions by fiat. You know, if you do your own research and realize, no, this is complete garbage, uh, eating meat is not bad for me, and eating meat is not going to destroy the planet, you still have no choice. Government policy is going to force you to eat less and less meat. They're going to tax meat more, and they're going to impose ratios and 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 uh, quantity controls that will prevent you from eating meat by fiat. That's why it's fiat science. There's no scientific method here. There's no scientific debate. You have to believe it. And that's going to be done through your CBDC. Same is true with oil. You can do your own research on the climate and energy and you realize no, this is obviously complete garbage. The planet is not going to burn down because of fossil fuel use. And you would like to continue to consume the fuels that are essential for your survival and for your ability to survive the winter and for your ability to live a modern life and for your access to modern technology, fiat CBDCs will prevent you from, do it, from doing it. Your CBDC will not allow you to buy more meat, even if you're not convinced that it is boiling oceans, boiling oceans. And so rationing, heavy taxation and outright bans will hit price sensitive goods thanks to CBDCs. Lockdowns will become more and more common under the pretext of saving the climate. And just recently, just in the last couple of weeks, we saw how Oxford in England has now announced climate lockdowns starting in 2024. They're going to start locking people into regions of the city where you can't leave this because apparently going from one side of town to the other side of town is going to destroy the planet and uh, make the oceans rise and um, flood us and just make the world uh, fall apart. You know, this entire planet's a massive, massive, massive ball of rock hurtling through space around a giant ball of sun. Its thermostat is your ability to drive. If you drive, you're going to ruin this planet. It's completely ridiculous pseudoscience, but this is where we're going. And I think this is, this is what CBDCs are going to do. And that's the only way inflation can be managed with CBDCs. So remember, the Soviet Union continued to produce impressive economic growth numbers into the 1980s as its people were going hungry. Fiat economists in the West continued to proclaim it a success well into the 1980s. If you, um, There's a quote in the book with Paul Samuelson and William Nordhaus, two of the most important fiat economists that are highly revered in fiat world. I mean, they are completely clueless about economics because those people, uh, in, the 19, in, in the 1989 edition of their stupid textbook called Principles of Economics, they argue that the Soviet economy will outperform the United States economy. They were saying this even as the Soviet economy was falling apart because they are dumb macroeconomists who believe in idiotic macroeconomics. Of course, both of them won the supposed Nobel Prize in economics, which is garbage award um, from the Central Bank of uh, Sweden. And uh, it shows you the quality. I think this is the best testament to the quality of mainstream fiat economics and how completely clueless the people in it are, that they can look at these statistics from the Soviet Union and say that it proves that central planning works and that uh, central planning will outperform economic freedom. This was the line that these um, dumb textbooks all parroted into the 1990s as the Soviet Union collapsed. And I think this is how fiat economists are going to treat the fiat economy under a CBDC central planning model. 
we're going to see terminal decline into economic irrelevance under impressive propaganda statistics and economists just trying to convince you that no actually it's for your own good that you're eating uh, insects and bugs it's for your own goods that you're not eating meat it's for your own good that you're stuck at home it's for your own good that your consumption is going to head toward the things that are not price sensitive digital goods and mass-produced goods are going to be what you consume oil fuel meat real nutrition those are the things that you're going to be headed shepherded away from so fiat cbdc's will be valuable for purchasing government approved mass-produced and digital goods for everything else there's bitcoin this is i think why how we're going to be um um, witnessing the world economy develop under a CBDC system. Um, remember the discussion of um, uh, remember the discussion of inflation as a vector in chapter five on how fiat money um, ref is reflected, uh, how fiat inflation is reflected uh, differently in different goods. Digital goods are constantly dropping in price. Mass-produced goods are dropping in price at a slight rate or increasing at a very slight rate. And then goods that require human uh, extensive, goods that are labor-intensive that require human attention, these become more and more expensive. Goods that are not easy to cheat in their production, they become more and more expensive. So oil is highly price-sensitive. It's energy. You can't cheat energy. You can't make energy by fiat. Nutrition, also, you can't make nutrition by fiat. You can't make meat by fiat. A cow needs to go out on and graze for a year and a half before it grows up enough to be eaten. And so these things are price sensitive. You're going to be shepherded away from consuming those things. And your experience of life is going to center around things that are cheap and that don't reflect inflation. So if you live in a tiny apartment then you don't require a lot of heating cost. And if your life experiences become primarily digital, you know, you get on the metaverse, you wear a headset, instead of going out and traveling to somewhere nice where you can go to the beach and climb a mountain, you just sit on your couch and you wear a headset and you get to experience the mountain and you get to experience the beach. That's going to be enormously better for inflation. This is where we're going. This is where all of this nonsense about the metaverse is taking us this is where all the nonsense about eating bugs is taking us you eat bugs you stay in the pod you wear your headset you experience life digitally you don't have a, a large family or you don't have a family at all because you know having kids is bad for the environment that's where the cbdc economy is taking us this is the end game for fiat in my mind and in that world bitcoin is going to be the only way that you can buy the real things that people want the only way that you can buy fuel the only way that you can buy meat so you can imagine two new global economies emerging across the world on the one hand there is the easy money centrally planned economy of which government media and academia you must insist that you must be a part it provides comfortable jobs secured from competition and controlled prices to ensure everyone gets their government recommended soy bug and high fructose corn syrup rations stays in a tiny home consumes little energy, and has few or no kids to avoid burdening the planet with inconvenient inflationary pressure. And on the other hand is a growing, innovative, and apolitical economy which draws in the most ambitious, creative, and productive people in the world to work hard on providing goods of value to others. 
this is really, I think, how we are going to be seeing the system um, unfold in the case of the growth of central bank digital currencies. We're already seeing it without central bank digital currencies to an extent. But I think this is a way in which we can see the kind of rosy scenario get a little less rosy. Centralized inflation will create a monetary caste system similar to that which exists in socialist societies. A ruling class with an abundance of desirable goods and a majority surviving thanks to a black market. And the black market in this case is going to be Bitcoin. Your only way out of this dystopia is Bitcoin. And this is really, you know, um, the sales pitch for Bitcoin is just going to continue to get easier and easier the more inflation and central bank digital currencies become prevalent because they're the really alternative. So some might think that central bank digital currencies are competition for Bitcoin, but they are more like advertising for Bitcoin. The important thing about Bitcoin is not that it is digital. Fiat is mostly digital anyway. Bitcoin matters because it is censorship resistant and inflation resistant. Central banks exist to do the exact opposite. They exist to censor payment processing and create inflation. Central bank digital currencies simply allow central banks to perform this more efficiently, the complete opposite of Bitcoin. As central bank digital currency totalitarianism intensifies, Bitcoin censorship resistance and inflation resistance value proposition becomes more obvious. So in conclusion, I think the growth of a purely fiat CBDC will make an orderly upgrade to a harder money less likely and instead will probably result in economic apartheid between two hostile monetary systems, Bitcoin and fiat. The fiat economy will be fully regulated and surveilled, constantly subject to inflationary pressure and financing increasingly violent and totalitarian governments that control their serfs' purchasing decisions. The Bitcoin economy would be a free market based on hard money allowing its sovereign members to save, trade, and plan for the future freely while financing the growth of cheap energy production worldwide. This concludes this course, and this is, I think, my conclusion of the best answer that I can come up for of how things will develop. I think if we get CBDCs, is going to be the scenarios. I think if uh, the banking system and um, forces that are supportive of freedom are able to rein in CBDCs and rein in inflation over the next few decades to keeping it in the relatively um, benign range in which, which we saw in modern developed economies over the last decade or two. You know, um, if inflation in the US and Europe and the more advanced economies over the next three decades is similar to the last three decades rather than just the last two years, then I think we lean more toward the orderly transition debt jubilee scenario. But if inflation intensifies and CBDCs intensify and totalitarian surveillance and control over central banking and money intensifies, then I imagine we're going to witness more of this kind of financial apartheid uh, scenario. This is the best answer I could come up with for how Bitcoin rises in a fiat world. And this is, it really took me writing all of this book to try and come up with this answer. I thank you so much for joining this course and for taking it, for reading the book and for being interested in my work. And um, I hope you enjoy my next books and courses as well. Thank you very much.